This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Hannah Jones about violent ignorance, confronting racism and migration control. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Um, This book basically speaks to literally everything that's going on in the world every (laughs) single day. Um, And it's both, you know, a a kind of a way of maybe a framework for understanding um, what's going on in the world today, but also it makes, I think, a series of of important um, associated points actually around um, particular scandals in the UK, um, issues across uh, Europe, but also across the world. Uh, and actually has some interesting things to say about art as well, which um, is not something you can say about sociology books um, all that often. And, and I guess the place to start would be with the title. And I'm interested to know a bit about um, why you're interested in, in, in writing a book about um, violent ignorance and, and I guess kind of what that that term means. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... I've got this tendency to go, everything is relevant. <laughs> oh, it's a bit, I've tried to make it structured as well. But the idea, I can't actually remember where I came up with the term, but definitely influenced by ignorance studies more generally, which is about the kind of what we don't know. So rather the epistemology of, epistemology being how we know what we know, and agnotology, as some people call ignorance studies, being there are things that people don't know, and that's because we haven't discovered them, but it might be because we choose to ignore. So that's mainly focused on questions around science and what science gets explored and what doesn't. But I think in terms of seeing people in a more sociological way, knowing about injustices of various kinds or unfairnesses and being hurt by them or upset by them, but not being able, but still functioning as if, as if. Um, they weren't there. I think that's where I started to think about ignorance in this way of an active verb, ignoring. So how do we ignore things that should be shocking? And actually we need, people need to do that to function in society and, and to some extent to do anything. But in terms of just walking along the street and seeing people who are destitute um, and thinking that's not a great thing, but not knowing what to do about it, um, it's a kind of tendency of people to ignore. But in, in stepping away from that, you're doing violence um, in the sense of continuing to perpetuate those those things that are too difficult to look at. But I'm trying to write it not in a, I tried to write it not in a judgmental way, in a kind of everyone should be fixing everything all the time, but that this is, it is a troubling question. Like how do we, how does a person cope in the world where there's so much terrible stuff going on um, and yet think about how each one of us is implicated? 
So it's kind of looking away from difficult stuff. And what does it do when we look away from things that are too difficult? And is there another way of being in the world? Does that make sense? It's certainly actually what you were saying there, that the book is deeply critical and, and, and rightly so, as we'll see when we think through some of the uh, examples, but also it is sympathetic um, to a variety of, of, of individuals, actually, that you know you, you sort of talk about in particular uh, case studies. Um, and, I mean, you know, there's some very striking case studies uh, later on in the book, um, you know, people who are placed in, uh, I guess, kind of, you know, positions of power, but, you know, have unimaginably kind of grim, moral dilemmas um, as, as a result of those positions and you know how do people resist and and these um, kinds of questions I think and, and yeah you know deeply critical but also um, sympathetic and perhaps empathetic I, th- I think is the is, is the mode of, of the book and if we've thought through kind of what violent ignorance is the best way to um, you know maybe kind of bring it to life is to think through some of the case studies um, and the, the book is, 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 it begins and it's kind of framed as well, I guess, um, with the murder of Joe Cox, who for, you know, listeners around the world might not know, a, was a British uh, MP who was killed uh, by a far-right, uh, I guess, kind of activist, um, terrorist in, in some ways. Um, and this was, you know, kind of during the um, campaign um, around the question of, whether Britain was going to leave the European Union, and your analysis, I think, yeah, is 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 that deeply critical and, and also sympathetic. And the story of Joe Cox is framed, you know, both as as a story of people's reactions and trying to understand them, but also, I guess, kind of showing the limits of um, the way that particular groups um, tried to make sense of uh, the murder and then tried to move on afterwards. Mm. Yeah, I think that was the thing with Joe Cox's murder and the response to it was part of the inspiration for working through these ideas because it was such a shock. Um, in many parts of the world, members of parliament get murdered um, with more worrying frequency. And But it's a very unusual thing, thankfully, in the UK. Um, and so when an MP was murdered, um, it was national news and it was and it was international news as well and it was particularly at this moment just before the vote on whether to leave the eu and she was campaigning to stay in the eu and the the murderer kind of the stuff he shouted made that link as well um so she was a white woman but she was seen as part of the um campaign to stay in the eu and be international she'd done stuff to support syrian refugees and the person killed her kind of shouted Britain first and and these kind of um, slogans of the far right and there was lots of things to connect him with white supremacism Um, and so that seemed like something that that needed to be reckoned with Um, and of course it was at the same time as this campaign to leave the EU and a week it was a week before the the vote and um, after the vote was won by the leave campaign um, one of their prominent politicians said that they'd won without a shot being fired. And of course, the shot wasn't fired by um, by an official campaigner, but it was, there were many shots and stabbings just of this one woman. 
And the thing was that it was a, a moving national campaign, but it was about, it became about how awful it was for this woman to have died. And the things she stood for were things that many people stood for, um, but in a, presented as a as this catchphrase, more in common, which was something that she, he, she had worked around people having more in common than what divides us. And I just felt that that left out the kind of real political question of how and why she came to be murdered. Because if we have more in common than what divides us, how does it happen that someone is so moved to murder someone they disagree with? Um, and that we really needed to think about, uh, we as like a society needed to think about that conflict and that hurt. And and yet it's quite hard. Obviously, she was a person, a mother, a, a friend, a wife, and people need to mourn in those ways. But the significance for Britain, and perhaps more widely, was that a politician had been murdered for what they stood for, and that hadn't been dealt with in the kind of national campaigns. And that felt like an ignoring of some of the underlying issues. But it's a balancing act, because I'm not trying to say people are wrong for having um, get great get-togethers where neighbourhoods come and share food. But I'm trying to say that doesn't address the underlying questions and how is there a way to do both. The, I mean, I'm, I'm struck there, yeah, how is, how is there a way to do, to do both? Because I suppose like some of the examples about um, education projects um, that, that come later in the book do grapple with these. How is there a way to do both questions? But um, the book turns to, I guess, an example where, and you, correct me if I'm sort of misreading, but really there isn't a question of how to do both, actually. Um, so this is um, the example of the Grenfell Tower fire, um, which, you know, is, is still a kind of an ongoing, um, you know, sort of legal political question um, in the UK. Um, and here it, it's, you know, kind of instructive to think about the way that we're not seeing a question of, you know, well, how do individuals kind of move on from horrible events? We're actually seeing, you know, the state um, doing much of the ignoring, um, you know, not kind of um, asking questions that might lead to kind of formal change and you know reform and, and, and things like this and, and I think Grenfell is, is a really good example of you know the need for this um, critical take um, on violent ignorance both in terms of the ignoring of individuals and their um, housing conditions but also the way that you know the state tries to kind of I wouldn't say maybe cover up isn't isn't the the theme in, in the book, but, you know, the, the way that the state really tries to move us along and move us away um, from understanding tragedy and learning from it. Yeah, I mean, I think I use a load of different metaphors um, to try and get at that idea that it's not that no one talked about Joe Cox's murder or that <clears throat> Grenfell hasn't been a, excuse me, <clears throat> hasn't been a big um, question that's preoccupied and up and worried many people, but that to deal with those, there's some moments like the murder of Joe Cox, like the Grenfell Tower, where so many people died, and it was as a result of negligence, which had been known about and documented. Um, it's a moment when people can't look away. So it's a kind of talk about a rupture in the skin of violent ignorance that we're sort of coping with as if everything's fine. And there are some moments when one 
no one can look away from a, a burnt out building that people are having to jump out of to because it's better than staying inside. Um, and the the kind of a, a very common reaction is to think, how can we make this better? And how can we make it not a terrible thing which shakes how we think about society and all of the ways that we function? Because what Grenfell showed was the absolute, there was such um, levels of poverty compared to levels of absolute wealth in the same neighbourhood. There were complete neglect of housing, um, despite there being all this wealth and the opportunity to, to make people safe. And in fact, the cladding, which was what caused the fire to spread so quickly was part of a kind of making the tower look nicer from the outside. So it was really um, striking that that kind of trying to not see what's in plain view is is what happened and is what led to the tragedy around Grenfell Tower. And and even there, there was this doing both. So there was there were people there to help out. There were actually the people who were most who were first on the scene obviously the firefighters were there but the community um around that area who were up um because it was during ramadan so they were up early so the muslim communities were often were some of the people who started to organize help for people leaving the tower early on and then lots of people in the neighborhood organizing food and shelter and help um where the local authority was slow to come in um, and then there was stuff like people sending baby milk and, and things like that. But at the same time, there were these houses standing empty in the neighborhood, very plush, lovely houses, um, and people being made homeless. And lo- And it's not just about that they lost their place to live, but that those kind of inequalities and, and things that we take for granted as normal were not thrown up in the air. It wasn't a kind of, well, how can how can we fundamentally do better. It was about scabbing over that that breach of the skin of violent ignorance and saying, well, we can put people into temporary accommodation. Maybe there can be an inquiry. And all of those things are necessary. It's necessary to do the inquiry to work out exactly what happened. But in the but does it just go back to the same system with a tweak? And that's often how progress sort of works. So how can we take those moments where no one can look away um like the kind of the moment of Ilan Kurdi the toddler who died in the Mediterranean and the image of him went around the world and brought out the wave of refugees welcome kind of movements which included like physical things of people offering to have others live in their homes um that it would they would seen lots of pictures of everyone had who read the paper would have seen pictures of people, including children, drowning, um, trying to cross borders. Um, but that particular image somehow captured people's imagination and was impossible to ignore, at least in that for a moment. So how can those moments that um, mobilise people to think something is wrong and something has to change actually lead to change rather than just a sticking plaster in, in, in simple terms? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. 
Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. I mean, you've segued perfectly into uh, the next question, which is, can art do this? And I, I was really struck by that middle chapter, actually, which um, is, is primarily about two artworks, but I think um, kind of comments more more generally on, on the role of, of kind of art, art and culture within uh, your analysis of, of violent ignorance, because um, it almost stood out in a way that, you know, later on you're talking about things like uh, bureaucracy, uh, the, you know, migration and immigration systems in, in, in various uh, parts of the world. Um, obviously, you know, Joe Cox, grandfather, you know, um, partially public policy disasters, acts of terrorism, this kind of thing. Um, and I, I was sort of interested to know both, you know, yeah, you know, what, what's the role of, of art and culture in doing that? that puncturing um but also why were you kind of interested in in writing about um the role of the arts as well yeah i think i mean i'm not trained in writing about the arts so i'm always a bit like is it okay (laughs) but um i think what strikes me is that some of those moments when people do kind of stop themselves and think this is so the Grenfell Tower disaster was not surprising in the sense that we know that there's unsafe housing and the local authority knew and and more broadly people who know anything about housing knew that but they're kind of in absolute disaster was impossible to look away from and in a way it was like it was the image even though it was several images and the same with Alan Kurdi but the um, I think art can do that that's what art is much some art is for is to kind of make us see things in a different way um and i got taken by this particular example um that's in that chapter around called barca nostra because that was really linked to what was happening in the what is happening continues to happen in the mediterranean um so there was this there was a boat that sank um with hundreds of people on it, which was only really for 24 people, um, and on its way to Italy. And um, it was brought up, so hundreds of people died. It was a massive tragedy, and um, the Italian government rescued the boat. Um, and then an artist took it on as a, a project to take that boat around the world to get people to look at it. So it was restored and taken to the Venice Biennale. And it was really controversial because some of the critiques were this is um making that tragedy that human tragedy into a a spectacle that's not really taken seriously but to me it was in it was striking in terms of violent ignorance why isn't it taken seriously the fact that this artwork is placed in the this artwork which is actually a tomb that people died in uh, because of things that could have been avoided um is there in the middle of um all the kind of glamour of Venice and isn't it stop if it's not stopping people to think about how we each depend on each other's oppressions then how then what that says something in itself um and and so these kind of ways that we intervene that art can intervene in the shock of seeing something or the shock of not seeing it um struck me I think there's something about metaphors and feeling as much as knowing which is important in 
in kind of challenging ideas around violent ignorance because um, that's the problem. You can see all these facts on paper about um, deprivation or violence or um, border violence, but actually feeling it and it mattering is maybe something different. And that's where one way that art and culture can kind of shift the connections that people make. Facts on paper is, is one of the kind of key things that comes mm. through um, later on in the book, um, both actually in terms of things like the Windrush scandal and um, I guess the kind of, on the one hand, the failure of bureaucracy, but also in some ways the kind of like functioning of, of bureaucracy to to make, um, you know, things like a, a hostile environment for um, migration in, in particular countries. But then also... Um, questions of things like records and, and, and histories come up um, in, in quite a personal chapter where, where you, you talk about your own, but, but also others' sense of, of family past. And mm. I guess, you know, it, in some ways, Windrush is um, like, like Grenfell and Joe Cox, you know, it, it strikes me as being a kind of a, a central point of context for writing a book about violent ignorance as well as being a, a kind of a case study um, and it'd be interesting to hear about you know why Windrush is both you know so kind of empirically important but also um, I guess you know why it's a starting point for the book as well. Yeah so for those who are not who yeah like you said for people listening from elsewhere Windrush the Windrush scandal um, was named after the boat Windrush that um, was kind of symbolically one of the first boats that brought um, Caribbean Commonwealth citizens to the UK um, after the Second World War. And so um, about 70 years after that, the Windrush scandal, as it became known, hit, which was um, that those citizens who'd been, had the same citizenship as people born in Britain at that from the 40s, um, became um, had their status was changed in the 70s by immigration law in that people had arrived and they were okay to stay but didn't become British citizens and there was no paperwork to document that and that was fine people were legally in the UK and were not considered migrants in a legal sense and then in 2014 new immigration laws which restricted rights of um, people to to, well, increased checks on people in not just in work, but in renting accommodation and having bank accounts and so on, um, meant that suddenly that generation of people didn't have the right paperwork because if they hadn't applied for passports, they'd never kind of regularised their paperwork. But that was not the same as being um, undocumented because there were people who had had the per- the right to be here. So there was a kind of forgetting of that process of that kind of liminal status in terms of bureaucracy um, but it was also made worse because a lot of the records that of the landing cards of people arriving had been destroyed but really it was about it also I think is really important in terms of thinking about race and migration together um, in that in the sense that has always existed because limiting people's rights on the basis of where they come from um, is very much linked and who they're related to is very much linked to um, questions of race as well as migration. But the the way that laws shift and people 
don't shift. So the ways that laws and expectations and um, understandings of people can change over time, even if the people haven't crossed borders or moved, is really well illustrated by what happened around Windrush. You can see it all in other parts of the world where borders, particularly parts of Europe where borders have moved in living memory many times and people's belonging somehow is expected to align with that. And of course, the creation of borders in terms of carving up um, colonial territories as well. But Windrush is obviously quite immediate and you can see the workings of this um, step by step and that race also comes into it in terms of why there was no attention to what would happen to those, why those landing cards were important or what would happen to the people without that documentation if they're not seen as important or they're not as important to the people making decisions because there aren't those connections. So there's a whole um, analytical importance the Windrush scandal, quite aside from there are still people who are um, not able to see their family or be in the place where they always have been or who, people who've been wrongly put into detention. Not that it's right, to, in my opinion, to put people into detention, that is into immigration, into administrative detention without facing any kind of due process. But people who were in the situation of not having done anything differently or wrong who might have been deported or who have been deported or who've lost their jobs or who've not received healthcare. Um, that's all there and still live. Um, but it, it's also, it helps. I think it's helped um, some people to see those connections, which are quite hard to articulate uh, abstractly. Um, what about in your own, uh, I guess, kind of personal family history? Mm. Again, it was, quite moving actually to to see you know your own kind of sense of self and and reflecting on um your background and, and your family history in the context of um things like immigration documentation and you know how to sort of bring to the fore um both the theory and the kind of the practice of, of violent ignorance yeah i think i had um tried to think about what was happening around uh, at the at the time of writing and um as part from family being part of this um way that people see themselves as connected to one another or not um i've also i've also tried to kind of in the past like resist thinking oh who i am and what i think is determined by my family history but i think in these years um it's become particular parts of that family history have become like relevant to very present politics. So what I wrote about there was really about um, after Brexit, um, applying for, after the Brexit vote rather, um, discovering that I could get dual citizenship from Britain, but obviously I'm already British, but also with Germany. And that's because my grandpa um, came from Nuremberg, when he was a child with his parents um, in the 1930s as a Jewish family who were otherwise going to be exterminated. And they, the thing is, they were lucky because they could get out because they had the resources to do that. And then they helped other people to do it as well. But there's a um, strange situation now where I now have um, EU citizenship and British citizenship 
but it's because and so I'm lucky but it's because of that history um and there's plenty of people in that situation in fact there was lots of um there were a few kind of um news stories about it a couple of years ago I think it's kind of demonstrates the um it, it demonstrates different things because it's also about just it's convenient to have EU citizenship, but there's also obviously conflicts with wanting to have a citizenship that's part of that kind of reparations. Um, and it's always been a, I always thought it was a rule of thumb that as many passports as you could have was helpful. But the other thing that's happened in recent years is um, Brit in British law is there's been a series of laws of a couple of decades that make it easier to remove citizenship from people who have dual citizenship and now including people who were born into British citizenship. So it's got to be in certain circumstances, but that's what happened with Shamima Begum, um, who was actually made stateless. And that isn't, is meant to be post second world war, a thing that um, European countries don't do. Um, but it reinforces these kind of complex connections between citizenship, nationality, um, belonging and, and racialization. Um, so I think I was trying to think through my positioning in relation to these things, but also the idea that people co call on parts of their past. I've also found that I have to keep coming out as Jewish in order to <laughs> um, engage in some discussions of left-wing politics at the moment without um, being seen as anti-Semitic, although it might still be. Um, and these kinds of um, mobilizations of different stories in people's past because that's only one part of my family um, are also part of how different rights are distributed around people so I was thinking personally but the chapter is also about more broadly the ways that people reckon with who they are um, in the current in their current moment and relate it to their family histories and story um, and justify their own positioning so we can think about it in terms of um white supremacy <laughs> in terms of um people feeling that their privilege of not just whiteness but cap capitalist acquired um advantage is natural whereas it's actually come through um different relations of power um there's a write about ben affleck um and how he uh, the controversy over his family history in um, the bits he wanted to highlight and the bits he wanted to hide and how to actually come to terms with family histories that people are more ashamed of and don't want to be associated with, not just in terms of having slavers in one's ancestry, but also in terms of more immediate, that the, some other people's work on the children of um, Nazi criminals and how to make sense of that and how to relate. And it goes back to that question of empathy how to be part of uh, a family with a person who you loved who also did reprehensible things and that that's uncomfortable and this kind of idea of making things comfortable in order to avoid difficult questions which is part of the ways that violent ignorance gets reinstated is um, how can we hold both of those things at once rather than going for those simple answers that the person was a, a good person or a bad person they might be both that's one of the things that the book, I guess, tries to do as it as it closes. Um, and I mean, there's all different kinds of things we, we haven't um, 
even sort of scratch the surface of in in the book it, it's you know um really kind of rich with with lots of different examples and, and different um kind of ways of thinking around violent ignorance but i was thinking through what what you were discussing there is you know this kind of question of um how do you live with a complex family past for example is related to so what kind of possibilities are there for action you know what is i guess that you know the question would be so what's the manifesto that that closes the book but to give listeners a, a sense of context the um, end of the book really does try and think through how we might you know take action how we might kind of resist violent ignorance um in ways that aren't just a kind of a diagnosis of the phenomenon but are also you know in some ways a kind of a i guess a set of of practical plans about remembering, making connections, um, thinking about when to be silent and, and when not to be. So, yeah, what what is the kind of um, that manifesto moment at the end of the book? Yeah, it was partly about thinking, well, it's really, again, like trying not to be sanctimonious in, in the kind of critique in the book. It's also it's trying not to just say everything's complicated, off you go, um, but to think, so what about it? And um, the... The manifesto is about just trying to, yeah, suggest ways forward, but it's not as prescriptive as A, write to your MP, B, go to a protest. It's not that kind of manifesto. It's more, um, or even a plan of action. But it's thinking, like you said, about what are the key things here that um, I think from the work I've done would help us to kind of, if we, if if one doesn't want to, um reinforce violent ignorance and yet to some extent it's inevitable in able to being able to function so i organized things around three kind of ideas one was around information and just like you were saying the questions of what documents exist um whether those are written documents or oral histories or other kinds of ways of remembering um collecting information but also questioning information so making um archives of things that might not get remembered that might get erased um all those kinds of um activist archive type work that does exist but also questioning information which is something that um can get erased even especially under the weight of everything happening all at once which we're seeing that kind of feeling a lot during the pandemic um and then the second area is thinking about imagination so again questioning making the links and that's where they're kind of um, thinking differently like using art to make connections or um, see things differently is really important so um, information imagination and then risk so taking chances so um, testing things out and and sort of trying to get away from the feeling I guess as I've been saying of having well that those answers are wrong so let's find the right answer and actually we, it's hard to know if something is the right answer in the first before ever really and so testing things out uh, but also working all of these things are about not about individuals but about working together so um taking risks together and trying and failing and trying again um so really trying to think how what are the things that matter? Um, how can they be shared and how can they be tried out in different ways? Um, and I just tried to formulate that into some kind of 
of manifesto and part of that imagination i guess is making those connections like as i was talking i was just thinking that those questions you asked about the the ways of thinking about family are also ways of thinking about bigger social forms like nation or um ethnic group or whatever that they're about because it's about thinking um if this is the past how does that relate to the present and it's not all about a quick answer that i'm the victim or i'm the perpetrator but actually how do those and or it's nothing to do with me it's in the past but thinking how those histories relate to the present and how they can be remade so using the imagination um to connect but using it based on something, not a kind of post-truth manifesto, but where is the grounds for this and how can we think about it differently? In terms of what comes next, I mean, you mentioned the weight of the pandemic and it does seem, you know, especially kind of cruel and unusual to say, you know, you've written both, you know, that final chapter, which is a manifesto and an analysis um, of violent ignorance in, in a variety of different domains. And so, you know, <laughs> what more are you going to produce, uh, particularly after, after the year we've, we've all just uh, lived through or longer than a year? But it, it did strike me that, um, you know, there is, I guess, a kind of a, um, a full research project or, you know, a, a kind of a, a research paradigm almost um, that, that might come from the book. Um, and is, you know, your next kind of set of work um, doing more to substantiate that? Or are you thinking more of, you know, the book as being the kind of starting point for other researchers and you moving on to uh, maybe a, a different set of themes? Yeah, I think, um, I feel like I've got the book out of my system a bit, but I just think maybe I should do something with the concept. But the the things that I'm, in theory, working on that have been paused over trying to manage over the last year, are all related to some of the themes within that. So um, there's some work with colleagues at um, Alice Maria and Melissa Ono-George that we're doing around um, kind of anti-racist student activism in universities and how um, those students are thinking about what the university is and how the good and the difficult parts of it, um, how... Um, and also they, those students were keen on thinking about how their generations of student activism can link up over time. So that's, again, a way of thinking about archives and imagination. Um, and, and I'm also working with colleagues at, at various European universities on creative methods work, which is linked to, more to teaching. But that's about thinking, again, about how can students start to, and academics think about understanding the world through different paradigms to talk about um, some of the things where existing language might fail. And that's not new that, you know, that's teaching other people's work, but I think it ties in with some of the manifesto. And then the broader stuff that I really want to work on as a research agenda is about this question around family, race and nation and how particularly family history tracing makes people think about where they fit around um, belonging and where others fit around belonging so uh, yeah I guess it's gone away from that central concept of violent ignorance um, but yeah it, it's still linked to those underlying themes <laughs> <laughs>